You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 109 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. If you are a regular listener, you know that I am very interested in the light. And many episodes of this podcast deal with embracing the light. But I am also very fascinated with the dark. After all, if there is no darkness, how can you see the light? I'm going to do a sort of historical retelling of one of my favorite characters in history. A character that's always intrigued me. It is a story of a mass murderer, a sadist, a power-hungry maniac. It is also about a man who was shaped by the circumstances of his life. And in a way, it is thanks to this man that perhaps those societies that exist in Europe today uh, are not Muslim. Not that there is any problem if they were Muslim. I'm just pointing out the fact that without this guy, Europe might not be what it is today. And what it could have been if this guy didn't exist is impossible to know. About 15 years ago, I backpacked uh, through Romania, following the footsteps of this individual. I visited his birthplace, his seat of government, his fortress. I spent time in the same mountains, gorges and valleys as he did. It was an amazing trip. History will know this guy as uh, the Impaler. Now keep in mind that this is my perspective and retelling of this tale. I don't belong to any academic institution or any quacademia. And I don't claim any authority and any mistakes are simply mistakes. Regardless, this is a true story that I'm about to share. And this story starts... With the father. At the beginning of the end of the Middle Ages, before the rise of the Renaissance, King of Hungary and later Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund founded the Order of the Dragon on the 12th of December 1408. And I've seen various dates. And uh, certain countries in the world have a name dedicated to each day of the year. And in fact, the 12th of December is the day of Alex. So, on my name day, this Order of the Dragon was founded by Sigismund uh, over 600 years ago. Sometime in the beginning of the 15th century. And this, this Order of the Dragon was your normal run-of-the-mill secret society, inspired by the Knights Templar and other military orders connected with the Crusades. And the sole purpose of this order was to fight the enemies of Christianity, 
in particular the Ottoman Empire that had sprung up in modern-day Turkey. Constantinople, which is what we call Istanbul today, was uh, the gateway into Europe. And in terms of having some sort of defense against hordes of Muslims coming into Europe, this was the spot to block. And ironically now with the current refugee crisis and all those refugees trying to escape uh, the conflict in Syria, it is through Turkey many of them try to reach Europe. So the situation hasn't changed. The difference is today we have refugees. In those days, in 600 years ago, it wasn't refugees. It was armies wanting to attack and take over and convert Europe. And if you look on a map, you can see that modern-day Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia and Macedonia is situated right between Turkey and the rest of Europe. So it was here that any resistance against invasion was to take place. At least if such an invasion was land-based. The two insignia to be worn by members of this order is described by the edict, or I guess in modern terms uh, you could say the bylaws of the order as it was written in 1408. And uh, this, this edict says, We and the faithful barons and magnates of our kingdom shall bear and have and do choose and agree to wear and bear in the manner of society the sign or effigy of the dragon, incurved into the form of a circle, its tail winding around its neck, divided through the middle of its back along its length from the top of its head right to the tip of its tail, with blood forming a red cross flowing out into the interior of the cleft by a white crack, untouched by blood, just as in the same way that those who fight under the banner of the glorious martyr St. George are accustomed to bear a red cross cross on a white field. The dragon in this description is similar to the alchemical symbol of the uberus, which is the alchemical symbol that represents the circular nature of things, life, death, rebirth. What ends will also begin. This order of the dragon had a wide assortment of members. One in particular person was from the Rakochi family, which is possibly the same family that the mysterious alchemist and wanderer Count Saint Germain came from. Check out episode 72 for more on this character of history. Now in those days Romania didn't exist. Instead, Romania was several different regions. The most relevant to this story I'm telling now is Transylvania, the top half of Romania, and Wallachia, the bottom half. In the 15th century, the social and political forces of Europe tried to gain control of Wallachia because it was the only thing standing in the way of the Turks, who were trying to get into Europe and destroy Christianity. Wallachia was stuck in between two powerful forces, Hungary to the west and the Ottoman Empire to the southeast. 
and the Hungarian kingdom had reached its zenith during this period. Therefore, the rulers of Wallachia, southern Romania, had to appease both these two empires, the Ottomans and the Hungarian, uh, in order not to become squeezed completely when these two empires would battle for, for world domination. As I said earlier, Sigismund, the guy who founded the Order of the Dragon, he was the king of Hungary. And before he became Holy Roman Emperor uh, in the year 1431, he invited a character called Vlad from Wallachia to his imperial fortress in Nuremberg. And the reason he invited Vlad, also known as Vlad II, was because uh, Vlad had fought bravely against Turks. Sigismund initiated Vlad into the Order of the Dragon, and Vlad II uh, would from this day onward wear the dragon insignia to the end of his life. Sigismund also made Vlad II the military governor of Transylvania, which is the region directly above Wallachia. And... uh, uh, but uh, Vlad II, he, he wasn't content to serve as a mere governor. So he gathered supporters for his plan to seize Wallachia from its current occupant, Alexandru I, which was a dynasty prince. In 1436, uh, like five years after he uh, was inici- initiated into the Order of the Dragon... Uh, Vlad II succeeded in his plan and he killed Alexander I and he moved into the capital of Wallachia, which is a city that still stands today called Targoviste. Uh, and uh, Vlad II, around this time, he had a son. And the son was called Vlad III. Now, Vlad II, because of his initiation into the Order of the Dragon, he called himself Vlad the Dragon. And in Romanian, dragon is Drac, so he was Vlad Drac. His son, therefore, was the son of the dragon. Or if you translate it uh, to his own language, he became Vlad Dracula. Dracula. So there you have the inspirational source of the fictional character Dracula. Uh, But the story of the real son of the dragon is far more interesting, in my opinion. So Vlad III, uh, which is Dracula's official name, he had uh, two brothers. A younger one, Radu the Handsome, and an older named Mircea. He also had a half-brother that was called Vlad the Monk. For simplicity, I will from now on refer to Dracula as Vlad. I could call him Dracula, but that name has so much baggage. And in a way, I want to distance you, the listener, from this word and from the vampire mythology. You will not be spared of horror in this tale regardless. The fictional Dracula is a wimp compared to Vlad III. And Vlad's father, Vlad II, he raised Vlad as a Catholic for political reasons. Uh, He didn't want to offend uh, Sigismund, the king of Hungary. 
and Vlad's early education was left in the hands of his mother and her family. And in his early childhood, uh, from the accounts I've read, seemed fairly normal for a young prince. Ball games, acrobats, puppet theaters, hunting with slingshots, and whatever entertainment was available to a young kid in those days uh, that did not have to worry about uh, food or shelter. Yeah, so basically Vlad's childhood was fairly normal for a prince. Uh, Although he did watch the condemned walk under his window to be hanged. But this might not be so bad as it sounds. After all, public hanging in those days were not an uncommon sight. Now, Vlad was trained, typical to that of the son of nobility throughout Europe. He was trained in etiquette and command. He was exposed to the elements on stormy days to build his physical and moral character. He was taught to be a warrior. His first tutor in his apprenticeship to knighthood was an elderly boyar, or noble guy, who had fought against the Turks at the Battle of Nicolopolis. And Vlad learned all the skills of war and peace that were deemed necessary for a Christian knight. In 1437, the king of Hungary, the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, the founder of the Order of the Dragon, dies. For the next six years, Vlad's father, Vlad II, Dracul, attempted to follow middle ground between his powerful neighbors, He was officially sworn to fight the enemies of Europe, but those enemies, the Ottomans, seemed to become an unstoppable force. He had to protect his kingdom and his power, so eventually he became forced to pay tribute to the Sultan, Murad II. Now Vlad's father was required to pay an annual tribute to the Ottoman Empire of 10,000 ducats, and if I've calculated correctly, it would be worth today about two million bucks, two million dollars. But that is not taking into account the fact that two million bucks today is less money than it was 600 years ago. So in a, so in a way, you know, this was a shitload of cash that Vlad's father had to cough up every year. The Turks eventually invited Vlad's father to come to Turkey for further negotiations. And Vlad's father accepted it, and along with Vlad himself and Radu the Handsome, uh, he made the journey only to be seized and taken to the capital. Vlad's father was released almost a year later, having to make further promises in addition of the cash tribute he had to give 500 young boys for the Janissaries which is a kind of Turkish Navy SEALs. Uh, Vlad himself, now 11 years old, and his brother, Radu, 7 years old, uh, they were kept at the palace as guests of the Sultan. And they were an insurance that Vlad's father would continue every year to pay his tribute of 10,000 ducats. This concept of keeping family members as a ransom was not uncommon in those days. It was a sure way to make certain a deal was not broken. Because if it was, 
the children would be killed. In March 1442, Vlad's father, which is the man that Sigismund had originally initiated into the Order of the Dragon, with the promise to protect Europe and the Empire from the Turks, well, that promise was broken. And uh, in March 1442, he allowed the Turks to pass through Valachia in order to attack Transylvania to the north. But they were defeated by the Hungarians under one John Hunyadi, the White Knight of Hungary, and a possible bastard son of Sigismund. Vengeful, they forced Vlad's father and his family to flee Valachia. But he returned uh, with Turkish support and regained the throne a year later. The next year, in 1444, Jon Hunyadi, the White Knight, broke the peace and launched the Varna campaign in an effort to finally drive the Turks out of Europe. He demanded that Vlad's father was uh, to fulfill his oath as a member of the Order of the Dragon and join this crusade. But instead, Vlad's father sent his older son Marcia in his stead, perhaps hoping the sultan would spare his younger sons if he did not take part in the crusade himself. So he was truly caught between two forces trying to juggle them both. On one side, he was in danger of being killed himself, together with his family, by the very people he had sworn allegiance to, uh, when he was initiated into the Order of the Dragon. On the other side, his uh, younger sons were in danger of being killed, living in the Sultan's palace in Turkey, if he chose to go against Turkey. So he was really in a vice. And the Christian army was utterly destroyed in the Battle of Varna. Uh, John Hunyadi, this white knight, as he's called, he managed to escape the battle under inglorious conditions. Uh, whatever that means, I don't know, but that's uh, what the history books say. Uh, it doesn't sound heroic, that's for sure. And from this moment, um, uh, John Hunyadi, the White Knight, was bitterly hostile towards Vlad's father and his elder brother, Marcia. In turn, they blamed John Hunyadi for losing the, the battle. Vlad's younger brother, Radu, who was also a uh, prisoner in, uh, in Turkey with Vlad, uh, he was totally took uh, by the Turks. He, um, in a way, converted to their culture. He had grown up in Turkey and he had become a potential ally of the Turkish Sultan Murad II and in fact he eventually ended up in his bed. Vlad himself remained defiant. For six long years he lived in this strange land under constant threat of the silken cord his captors reserved for assassination. A threat greatly increased at his father's eventual allegiance with the Christian forces of Varna. Vlad most likely changed during his captive years. Imagine knowing that if your father would fail in something, you would be dead. 
He learned early on that in politics, morals were foolish. He learned the Turkish language. He went into the pleasures of the Sultan's harem. And it was said by his Turkish captors that Vlad developed a reputation of being brute and treacherous, even frightening his own guards. Vlad did not seem to place trust in anybody again. He had a thirst for vengeance. He probably learned that life is cheap and that torture is only restricted by the imagination. And I am sure he could witness uh, torture firsthand in the torture chambers of the Sultan. So Vlad had uh, gone from watching the condemned go to their deaths to seeing people tortured to death in the most horrific ways. Assassination was common in those days uh, when you wanted to change the government. In uh, 1447, Vlad's father was finally killed on the order of Jon Hunyadi, the White Knight, uh, assisted by the Romanian ruling elite. Vlad's father's head was cut off, and his older brother Mircea had his eyes poked out with a burning stake and was, after that, buried alive. Imagine your father's head cut off and your older brother having his eyes gouged out and be, be buried alive. Jan um, Hunyadi placed his own man on the throne. And while all this happened, Vlad himself was still stuck in Turkey. His father and older brother had been murdered by one enemy, the Hungarians the people who basically were representing the whole of the Christian defense. And uh, his younger brother was sleeping with another enemy, the Sultan. Vlad was eventually released, although some sources claim he escaped. But I guess his whole reason to be in the Turks' possession was to keep his father in check. But his father was dead, so there was no point in keeping Vlad anymore. The Turks also supported Vlad as their candidate for the Valachian throne. Perhaps they thought he had flipped to their side like his brother Radu. Uh, And it is possible that Vlad himself had no problem in making the Turks believe that he had flipped to their side. One year after his father had been murdered, when Vlad was 17, he managed to briefly seize the Valachian throne for two months. But Jan Hunyadi, the white knight, he forced Vlad to surrender and eventually, and uh, Vlad fled to Moldavia. But when the guy uh, Jan Hunyadi had replaced uh, Vlad's father with to rule uh, uh, when he suddenly started to act pro-Turkey, he replaced that guy with Vlad, whom, after all, hated the Turks. It seems these two enemies threw Vlad back and forth between themselves, thinking they were smart in getting the results they wanted. And ironically, they did the same thing with uh, Vlad's father, you know. Um, but Vlad, Vlad had other plans. 
Constantinople, what's today Istanbul, had stood for a thousand years. And it had uh, protected the outposts of the East Roman Empire. But it was like a head without a body. A poor and largely depopulated city of ruins. And the inhabitants continued to flee in the face of the Ottoman threat. The successor of the Sultan, the guy who had uh, a sort of love affair with Vlad's uh, younger brother. The successor of this Sultan was a guy called Mehmed II Fatih. Also known as Mohammed the Conqueror. He was a young sultan who needed a great victory in order to reaffirm his new power. And thus, in April 1453, he began to lay siege of Constantinople. And this siege lasted for 54 days until it fell in May of 1453, on the 29th of May. And uh, all of Christendom was suddenly threatened by the armed might of the Ottoman Turks. Uh, Now they were at their doorstep and the Christian world was shocked. The conquest of Constantinople turned Mehmed II Fatih into the most celebrated sultan in the Muslim world overnight. and That's why he's called uh, Mohammed the Conqueror. He began to see himself as an heir to a worldwide empire. And the 30 years of his reign established the distinctive character of the Ottoman Empire. Three years later, uh, Jan Hunyadi broadened the scope of his campaign against the Turks and invaded uh, Serbia, uh, which was uh, Turkish in those days. And uh, he was killed and his army was defeated at the Battle of Belgrade. And uh, when this all happened, Vlad uh, at the same time invaded Wallachia and uh, took over. And uh, he was now in the position his own father had been in before everything had turned to shit. His family name was yet again the ruler of what is known as modern-day Romania. But Vlad was, like his father had been, dangerously exposed with enemies on both sides. So he aligned himself with the Hungarian king. In other words, he sided with Europe against the Turks. But just like his father, a few days later he took an oath of vassalage to the Turkish sultan and then agreed to pay 10,000 ducats annually. Exactly like his father, he tried to keep the Holy Roman Empire to the west at bay, as well as the Ottoman Empire to the south at bay. He was stuck in the middle. But his life would turn out very different from his father. It was now that uh, as the ruler of his homeland that his reign of terror began. But his terror began and was founded on revenge. On Easter Day, 1456, Vlad built a banquet hall outside the capital Targoviste, where about 500 of the aristocracy were gathered 
five bishops and the most important abbots from the most important foreign and national monasteries. The archbishop himself was present. These people that attended the banquet were the long-established noble families of his country. And Vlad had invited them all in the need to solidify his power and form allegiances. At least I'm sure that is what he told these snobs that this banquet was all about. Among these people were the same people who had decapitated his father and buried his older brother alive. Vlad served them a luxurious meal, and while they enjoyed the feast, he ordered his guards to surround the hall. The old and frail got impaled outside the city walls with their wives, children, and employees. The rest were made to march for many miles up the Argis Valley, still in their finest Easter celebration clothes, to the village of Arafu. Here, the aristocracy found pre-prepared brick ovens, lime kilns, and building materials. And these uh, aristocrats and their families were put to work rebuilding an extensively damaged fortress, 1,200 feet, 365 meters, above the village. This fortress was built so attack was impossible. The large windows were placed above the level that arrows and objects could reach. The enslaved aristocracy worked for months until their clothes fell off their bodies and they were then forced to continue working naked. Many of the workers died during the construction, often from falling, and the ones who survived got impaled in front of their finished creation. This is the true castle of Dracula. The one most tourists visit in Romania is Bran Castle. This has nothing to do with the true Dracula, Vlad Tepes, Vlad III. It's just a tourist trap. Although Bran Castle is a beautiful castle, it is the castle next to the village of Arufu that carries Vlad's legacy. But these days it is in ruins, although well worth a, a, a visit in my opinion. The scenery is amazing. With this act of killing all those aristocrats and their loved ones, Vlad had avenged his father and brother. And he got a fortress for free. Now his reign of terror could really begin. Because uh, Vlad, he ruled with the stake. Meaning that anyone that opposed him or committed a crime, they had impalement waiting for them. Impalement is a horrible punishment. And to be fair, he kept his kingdom quite peaceful because nobody dared to rock the boat. Nobody wanted to be impaled. Some say crucifixion is one of the worst ways to die, but I rank impalement as the worst. In fact, it's so horrific that many so-called sadistic dictators don't even go that far. But Vlad did. And Vlad certainly learned all about impalement from the Turks during his time in Turkey. And it is for this inhuman cruelty that he is best remembered. Impalement was Vlad's preferred method of torture and execution. Because it's gruesomely slow and painful. 
This obsession of impalement led to Vlad's other nickname, which is in the Romanian language Tepes, Tepes, and basically means uh, the impaler. Vlad Tepes, Vlad the impaler. So how does it work then? Well, the length of each stake or pole depended upon the rank of the victim. And uh, the victim's legs were bound and spread wide apart. Sometimes a horse was attached to each leg to ensure a proper spread. Then uh, the pole, the stake, was inserted through the rectum, through the ass, through the body and out through the mouth. And these stakes were carefully rounded at the end and smeared in oil to minimize tearing and prolonging the process. Sometimes, though, victims were impaled through other body orifices or through the abdomen or chest. Infants were impaled on the stake, forced through their mother's chests. The records indicate that victims were sometimes impaled so that they hung upside down. Often Vlad had the stakes arranged in various geometric patterns. The most common one was the ring of concentric circles, uh, in the outskirts of a, a city he was uh, targeting. He often left uh, these impaled corpses out for months, decaying, rotting in the sun. But Vlad, he had also other ways of torturing victims. He boiled people, he skinned them alive, he cut off noses, ears, genitals, especially female genitals. He cut off heads, he poured honey and salt into wounds and he forced animals to lick them. He strangled, hanged, burned, blinded, amputated, scalped and used exposure to the elements or to wild animals. He killed women, he killed children, peasants, great lords, ambassadors from foreign powers and merchants. He stuck stakes in both breasts of mothers and thrust their babies onto them. Through his reign, Vlad continued to systematically eradicate the old aristocrats of Wallachia, the southern region of Romania. And he was determined that his own power be on a modern and thoroughly secure footing. In the place of the executed elite, Vlad found new men from among the peasants and middle class, men who would be loyal only to him. Vlad was raised a Catholic, but no one knows his exact belief. But he must have seen himself as a crusader against the non-believers, against the Turks, because he would insist on proper ceremony and Christian burial for those he condemned to death. And he probably believed that uh, good works, such as building a monastery, would atone for evil deeds. The Roman Catholic Church was expanding at this time and uh, Vlad wasn't happy about that. Um, And they were building new monasteries but he replaced the high-ranking members of these monasteries with his own guys. And there are numerous stories relating to his encounters with individual Catholic abbots and monks uh, who would either gain favor with Vlad 
if they were witty or using flattery, or they would become a martyr to their faith if they opposed Vlad. One of Vlad's political rivals at the time was a priest, his half-brother, Vlad the monk. And there was a town called Sibiu that was uh, uh, occupied by the Germans. And uh, Vlad ordered this town to stop supporting Vlad the monk because uh, Vlad was getting more and more dissatisfied with the German presence in his lands. No reply came from uh, the town of Sibiu, so uh, Vlad attacked in an undeclared war across the mountains, and this was to be his first raid on the country of his birth, and he uh, destroyed savagely a number of villages and towns, and... um, He also destroyed the property of the wealthy merchants and aristocrats who were supporting this uh, Vlad the monk, his half-brother. When Vlad's armies invaded the Germans of northern Romania, of Transylvania, he had the, the people hacked to pieces like cabbage. And when his captain reported that a particular village could not be taken due to the courage of the inhabitants, he had the captain impaled. Vlad ruled with a cruel hand. Just about every crime was punishable with death. From idleness upwards. Basically, if you were lazy, you could end up with a big wooden pole up your ass. And uh, he insisted that his people should be honest and hardworking. Merchants, for instance, who cheated their customers were likely to find themselves mounted on a stake beside common thieves. The atrocities against the people of Valachia happened because Vlad attempted to enforce his own moral code upon the country. He wanted to create his own utopia, but instead of writing philosophical books or using inspirational acts, he used complete, well, I don't know what the word would be, complete evil to force the people to live exactly as he wanted them to live. Vlad was known for his fierce insistence on honesty and order throughout his land. Thieves seldom dared practice their trade in his domain, for they knew the stake awaited anyone who got caught. Vlad was so confident in the the effectiveness of his law that he put a golden cup on display in the central square of Targoviste, the capital, by a fountain so people could use this golden cup to drink from. And the cup was never stolen and remained entirely unmolested during his reign. So, uh, you know, if you were honest, if you didn't steal, if you, you know, worked hard and did your best, you were basically fine if you were living under Vlad. But if you were none of those things, you were fucked. I think this uh, Golden Cup story is wonderful, and I think it symbolizes the power of rule by terror. In a sense, it could be argued that if you don't steal, you'll be fine. 
and thieves, they should suffer the consequences. Although in 2017, such concepts of law and order would cause the average liberal hipster to wake up sweating, I think, screaming about human rights. I'm not saying I agree at all with uh, Vlad's methods, but I've always been interested in absolutes, in no compromise. And Vlad, in a way, embodies this fully, in my opinion. Even if the effect of his no-compromise attitude is uh, a lot of suffering for many innocent people. So no, I am not pro-Vlad one bit. I just love his story. And I want to understand how a person can be that dark, how he can be that hard and fierce. I once had a visitor in my home and he noticed I had a copy of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Why the hell do you have that? He seemed very upset. I don't see a problem with it. I mean, I have read Hitler's own words. I know his philosophy, his motives, his desires. I cannot blindly dislike someone. I have to see for myself, have my own direct experience to understand my own position. How do you need to do that? Hitler was evil. Everyone knows that. Well, my religion is direct experience. I go to the source. That is how I form my opinion. And for the record, I don't agree with Hitler one bit. But I enjoyed reading his book because it fascinates me. Although only the first half is readable. The second half, Hitler kind of loses it a bit and gets a bit repetitious and boring. If Vlad had lived 50 years ago, perhaps he would be easier to dislike. And, you know, time removes the horrors in a way. I mean, we can look at it without any living relative that suffered from his actions or even the children of his victims. We are far removed from the things he did. And that is why it is less controversial to talk about Vlad with fascination rather than Hitler, because Hitler is still very close to our own time. Even if those two are practically the same, and if Vlad had been able to use modern technology, who knows how many people he would have managed to torture to death. He certainly wouldn't limit himself to Jews. I mean, he'd wipe... He'd he'd just wipe everybody out, probably. Um, There are many tales, fables, legends and myths about Vlad. And these come down through us from many different sources. Many of the stories about Vlad comes from Romania's own oral tradition that have been retelling the events ever since they took place. Vlad is remembered uh, just as a prince who defended his people from foreigners, whether they were Turkish invaders or German merchants. He is also remembered as a champion of the common man against oppression of the aristocratic elite and for his success in standing up to the Ottoman Empire. In Romania, Vlad is not viewed as such a bad guy. Uh, so I guess, you know, what you consider bad is depends on your perspective, you know. If a guy kills and tortures all the people that have been trying to destroy your own Family? I mean, is he a hero or is he evil? Yeah, it's all rel- relative. A central part of the 
verbal uh, tradition is that, like I said before, Vlad insisted on honesty uh, at all times. And he tried to eliminate crime and immoral behavior from his lands. What is interesting, though, is that the German and Russian pamphlets agree on many of Vlad's deeds, even though they were written from different political standpoints. This is therefore strong proof that most of what happened could actually be true, or at least a sort of exaggerated truth. Regardless, I want to share some of these little stories, because on their own they have, like all good fables, a moral. moral. Although in Vlad's case, the moral of the story is not what most people would consider morally correct, but uh, Vlad was not certainly most people. First, I would like to mention a few stories about women that happened to cross his path. Vlad appeared uh, uh, to be uh, particularly concerned with female chastity, maidens who lost their virginity, wives who cheated on their husbands, uh, what you would in these days call sluts. (laughs) They were all targets of his cruelty. And such women often had their sexual organs cut out or their breasts cut off. And they were often impaled through the vagina on red-hot stakes. Vlad once had a mistress that lived in a house in the back streets of Targoviste. And yeah, it was a bit hypocritical. I mean, he killed uh, wives who cheated, but uh, and he killed um, women who were a bit slutty, but it was completely fine for him to have a mistress. Anyway, uh, this woman apparently loved Vlad um, and she was always very anxious to please him. And I mean, who wouldn't be because, you know, there was a stake waiting for you if you didn't please him. And Vlad, you know, he was often moody and depressed. And this woman made every effort to lighten his load. And once when Vlad was particularly down the woman dared to tell him the lie that she was with child. Vlad instantly had the woman examined and uh, he was then informed that no, she wasn't pregnant, she was lying. So Vlad drew a knife and he cut her from the groin to her breast right up. Let the world see where I have been, he said. And then he left her to die in agony. Another report tells of the execution of an unfaithful wife. Vlad had the woman's breasts cut off and then she was skinned and impaled in a square in Targoviste, her skin lying on a table nearby. Another story is uh, that uh, Vlad uh, met a guy working in the fields one day and this guy had a shirt that was a bit too short for his size. So Vlad asked to see his wife. And uh, the wife was a uh, was brought before him and he asked how she what she did with her day and she was uh, very frightened of course uh, and uh, scared of Vlad and trembling she explained how she had been washing and baking and sewing and doing all these chores and Vlad just pointed to her husband's uh, shirt 
as evidence that she had been lazy and dishonest and ordered her to be impaled, despite that her husband protested that he was satisfied with his wife, that uh, there's no reason to impale her, the, the length of my shirt, it doesn't matter. Vlad then ordered another woman to marry this guy. And uh, he said that uh, do a better job than his previous wife or you'll be impaled just like her. Yeah, so this is just a few stories concerning women. And uh, as you can hear, uh, none of them are particularly nice. But I think it's fascinating how someone can be that uh, dark, you know. On one occasion, a committee was sent by the Sultan, and uh, they came to Vlad, and uh, they refused to take off their hats um, when they bowed. And Vlad, he asked them, "Why do you act in this way before a great prince? This is the custom of our country, my lord." They answered. I don't want to help you in your customs. And then Vlad ordered that their hats be nailed into their heads with small iron nails. And Vlad told them as they left, Go and tell your leader that he may not impose his customs on other princes, but to keep them in his own land. Vlad had lived in Turkey and he probably knew all about their culture and customs. He was merely trying to provoke the Turks, I think. And the act of nailing hats on heads of those who displeased a monarch was not an unknown act in Eastern Europe. Still, it's a funny story in a sense, even if it wasn't that funny for the people who had to live through it. It depends on how dark your humor humor is. Mine mine can be pretty dark at times. Um. Vlad, he, he, he was very concerned that all his subjects work and contribute to the common welfare. He once noticed that the poor vagrants, beggars and cripples had become very numerous in his land. So he issued an invitation for all the poor and sick to come to his capital for a great feast, claiming that no one should go hungry in his land. As the poor and crippled arrived in the city, they were ushered into a great hall where a fabulous feast was prepared for them. The guests ate and drank late into the night and Vlad himself then made an appearance and he asked them, What else do you desire? Do you want to be without cares, lacking nothing in the world? When they responded in a positive way to this question, Vlad ordered the hall boarded up and set on fire. None escaped the flames. He explained his actions to the aristocrats that um, he did this in order that they represent no further burden to other men and that no one will be poor in his realm. These people were deemed undesirables, thieves, robbers, threatening commercial trade, And during his reign, Vlad, he murdered the upper class and he murdered the lower class. Let's look at this idea with our 
without any moral or ethical biases that we might have. You know, the rich, they have too much. The poor, they have too little. So if you get rid of these two, you are left with what? Well, you have the people who don't have too much and they don't have too little. I'm not saying this is a good idea to put into practice. I'm just pointing out that that is one way to look at it. Perhaps uh, Vlad was just trying to fix the inequality in, in one swift swoop. After all, a society with only a middle class is kind of an equal society. Because there is no rich and there is no poor. Such a society could be created with reform. It could be created with hard work, good education, parenting. But Vlad, perhaps he was an impatient man. And instead of trying to create such a society over generations, the quick solution was to just wipe them all out in a couple of weeks. Another story that documents uh, Vlad's twisted moral is when a merchant from a foreign land visited his land. And this merchant had heard uh, the reputation of Vlad's kingdom for honesty and lack of thievery. Uh, So he left a a treasure-laden cart unguarded in the street overnight. Uh, And when he returned to his uh, wagon in the morning, he was shocked to find 160 ducats missing. So the merchant complained of his loss to the prince, to Vlad, and Vlad assured him that his money would be returned. So Vlad then issued a proclamation to the city. Find the thief or the city will be destroyed. And during the night, he ordered that 160 ducats plus one extra ducat be taken from his own treasury and placed in the merchant's cart. Uh, On returning uh, the next morning, the merchant discovered the money had, had returned to him, and he also discovered this extra coin. He went to Vlad and reported that his money had indeed been returned, plus this extra coin. Uh, Meanwhile, the thief had been captured and turned over to Vlad with the stolen money. And Vlad ordered the thief impaled and informed the merchant that if he had not reported that extra coin, he would have been impaled alongside the thief. I don't know what to call this. It's beyond doing the right thing. I mean, Vlad doesn't seem to be satisfied with just simply helping someone. He wants to know that the person he helps deserves to be helped. It's uh, some sort of like Jesus on cocaine and steroids. On St. Bartholomew's Day in 1459, Vlad decided to cleanse the Transylvanian city of Brasov of 30,000 merchants and nobles. So he ordered them all to be impaled, as usual. And uh, he wanted to enjoy this this, uh, order. So he commanded that uh, a table be set up. So his own uh, nobility that he's created himself could join him for a feast among the forest of impaled corpses because it became like a for I mean, imagine 30,000 merchants and nobles impaled on stakes, erected 
in maybe probably in some circular fashion. I mean, it would look like a forest. Thirty thousand, and in amongst this, you know, in the middle of all this horror, he erected like a, a table and his his own newly created nobility, you know, and they had a feast. And while he was dining, uh, Vlad noticed that one of the one of his nobles was holding his nose in an effort to, you know, not smell the terrible smell of clotting blood in emptied bowels, you know. So Vlad ordered this sensitive nobleman to be impaled on a stake higher than all the rest, and he said, Stay there, far, so the stink will not disturb you. Vlad kind of reminds me, I don't know if, if you've seen Schindler's List, but Armon Goethe in that film, the Nazi, the, the bad guy in that film, he reminds me a bit of Vlad because there is no, there's a scene in Schindler's List where uh, the servant of this Nazi is saying to Schindler that she's living in constant fear because there's no certain set of rules she can abide by not to be punished or killed. I mean, if you have like, uh, like you do this, don't do this, you know, it's easy. You can follow the rules. But with this guy, with Amon Gus, this Nazi, you know, one day that could be the right decision. The next day that could be the wrong decision. So you were constantly, you know, she was constantly living in this, this, this fear for her life. Imagine every day, every hour of the day, you know, whatever demand is put on you, you try to do your best, hoping that this time you won't do it in such a way that you'll end up dead. Vlad was a bit like that, I think. You know, you just want, you, you're having dinner amongst 30,000 corpses and, it, you know, it stinks. You're trying to enjoy your food. You, you know, hold your nose. And then five minutes later, you got to stick up your ass and you're dead. Anyway, um, one of the most famous woodcuts of the period depicts this exact event. And it shows Vlad feasting among a forest of steaks um, outside Brasov. And nearby you can see executioners cutting victims apart. In 1460, Vlad impaled another 10,000 people in Sibiu. There is a reason he's called the impaler. It was not something that happened now and again. I mean, he impaled people as often as uh, you and I check our social media these days. I mean, 10,000 people here, 30,000 people there... You know, kill all the poor people, impale them. Kill all the rich people, impale them. You know, I suspect it was his favorite hobby. Frankly, there is no other character in history, this macabre. It's almost ridiculous. This is why I've been so fascinated with Vlad. It's simply astonishing. How does one become like this? Is it enough, really, to have your family murdered? Your brother buried alive? Living as a prisoner? Seeing your... Younger brother, be fucked by your captors. Watching daily people tortured in the palace. Is it enough to become like Vlad? Or does it require a certain type of person from the get-go? 
I don't want to find out for myself. I mean, I preach peace and love and compassion for all human beings. And I, I hope you, the listener, do the same. According to Jesus' teachings, at least as far as I understand it, even Vlad would have deserved Jesus' compassion. Even Hitler. Is that possible? Ask yourself, if you one day encounter a man suffering and you somehow know this person has done a lot of very horrible things to other people, could you show this person compassion? My heart says you should. But my brain says, ah, fuck that guy. You know, this is a constant battle and I will always strive to go with the light. But that's easier said than done. Regardless, if you would uh, meet Vlad and show him compassion, he'd probably impale you. You know, Vlad protected Europe from the Ottoman Empire. Like I said in the beginning of this episode, perhaps if he had not done this, the Turks would have managed to invade Europe. And who knows what the results would have been. I mean, it could have been better than we have now, or it could have been worse. We we simply don't know. Anyway, uh, with the Pope's blessing, Vlad did some daring raids into Turkey, and he captured thousands. And he, he knew the Sultan would avenge, try to, you know, get back at him for doing this so he poisoned wells and he burned villages and this is the famous scorched earth technique and it's nothing new the russians did it to the nazis it, it works it works if you're trying to invade a country you know you got to eat and do stuff along the way and but if everything's been poisoned and destroyed you know you're going to run out of food you're going to get weak and then when you finally reach your enemies they'll just trample all over you There was little the sultan could do, Muhammad the conqueror. His army could barely scrape a living in the the Transylvanian and Valachian countryside. And Muhammad the conqueror was not a man noted for being squeamish, but uh, when he and his army approached Targoviste in 1462, they encountered a three by one kilometer of impaled Turkish and Bulgarian prisoners, around 20,000 people outside uh, the city. Muhammad the Conqueror felt sickened. You know, it was a forest of the impaled. And the Turks returned back to Istanbul. And they would, from this day onward, refer to Vlad with mixed awe and hate as Lord Impaler. I mean, he was... I mean, many people... I mean, impalement... Vlad wasn't alone in impaling people, but, you know... If you take all the leaders and kings and dictators who were impaling people, you know, Vlad, he was he was the, you know, Wayne Gretzky, the Muhammad Ali, he was the the best or the worst depending on how you look at it. Although Vlad experienced some success in fending off the Turks, his accomplishments were relatively short-lived. He received very little support from his European allies. And his, uh, you know, Valachian resources were limited to achieve any lasting success against such a powerful enemy as the Turks were. Uh, In the same year that uh, the Turks uh, discovered this forest of the impaled and they um, went back. And uh, they actually succeeded in uh, making Vlad flee. Uh, 
And when this happened, uh, Vlad's uh, first wife committed suicide by uh, jumping from the one of the towers of his castle straight into the Argus River. You know, she'd rather suffer death than surrender to the Turks. And Vlad, he somehow managed to escape through a secret passage and he fled across the mountains. Some say he rode backwards to confuse his enemies. And he fled uh, into Transylvania and asked for aid from the Hungarian king. But the king immediately had Vlad arrested and imprisoned in a royal tower. Vlad was put in a house arrest and treated more like a guest than a prisoner. And he probably moved seasonally between Budapest and Visegrad. And his name is not included in any register of prison names. There is a debate on exactly how long Vlad was confined. However, during this period, he gradually won his way back into the confidence of the Hungarian king and immediately met and married a member of the royal family. He fathered two sons. And it is unlikely that a prisoner would be allowed to marry a member of the royal family. And here comes the most fascinating tidbit about Vlad. It is said that even in captivity, Vlad could not give up his favorite pastime. He often captured birds and mice and proceeded to torture and mutilate them. Some were even beheaded or tarred and feathered. And most of them were impaled on tiny spears he was making. He's fucking addicted. It's mind-boggling. He could not stop impaling shit. It shows that he didn't torture and impale people to enforce law or increase power. He loved doing it. Vlad's younger brother, the guy who'd gone to bed with the Sultan all those years ago, he was now the new successor to the Velashian throne. And he had instituted a very pro-Turkish policy, which isn't that strange considering he had, you know, had a some sort of sexual affair with the Sultan willingly. Perhaps Vlad uh, was seen as an option to replace Radu and reinstate a more anti-Turkish stance. And that is why uh, he was probably released from captivity. In 1475, Vlad uh, went against the Turks in something called the Summer Wars. And a year later, uh, he invaded Valachia with Stephen Battery of Transylvania. And uh, Radub, at this time, his younger brother, he'd already died and been replaced by a guy called Basarab. And at when Vlad's army uh, approached Basarab, uh, this guy fled, so Vlad could easily retake the throne. So he was back again in the seat of power. I mentioned, um, you know, he was helped by this guy called Stephen Battery during the Summer Wars. And this guy, Stephen Bathory, is related to Elizabeth Bathory, who lived her life right after Stephen and Vlad. But basically, she lived in the same era of time. I mean, all these three characters were alive at the same time, even if it was brief. And Elizabeth Bathory, she's been labeled by the Guinness World Record as the most prolific female murderer of all time. Though the precise number of her victims is debated, Battery and her four collaborators were accused of torturing and killing hundreds of young women. One figure is as high as 650. 
The stories of her serial murders and brutality are verified by the testimony of more than 300 witnesses and survivors, as well as physical evidence uh, and the presence of horribly mutilated, dead, dying or, or imprisoned girls found at the time of her arrest. And that is just amazing that one country first suffered one of the worst psychopaths in history with an impalement fetish, followed by a woman that murdered hundreds of girls back to back. No wonder Vlad and Elizabeth inspired stories of vampires and blood-sucking counts. The most common legend of Elizabeth is that she was bathing in her victim's blood to retain beauty or youth. In December 1476, in a forest outside Bucharest, Vlad is killed. Some say it was a servant paid by the Turks or that he was assassinated by a disloyal aristocrat just as he was to sweep the Turks from the field. Other accounts have him falling in defeat, surrounded by the ranks of his loyal bodyguards. Other reports claim he was accidentally struck down by one of his own men at the moment of victory. But one fact remains, his head was severed from his neck and it is said it was brought to the sultan who in turn had it displayed on a stake, as proof that the horrible impaler was finally dead. And, he, you know, poetic justice is, you know, when he was dead, he ended up on a stake. Although he ended up on a stake after he died, you know, which is, you know, if, if I was going to be impaled, you know, I'd rather be impaled after I'm dead than while I'm alive. Vlad was buried at Snagov, an island monastery located near Bucharest. His family had long been associated with this monastery. And there's no marker at his tomb. And there seems to have been a concerted effort to simply forget the dreaded prince and his reign. A richly dressed and crowned body without a head was unearthed uh, outside the main doors of the monastery in 1930. If it's Vlad, then he was perhaps moved outside by a priest who believed uh, he was too evil a man to be buried beside an altar of God. So there you have it. I I hope it wasn't too dark for you and I hope you could follow this little story of Vlad's reign. So that's the, the real Dracula. And as you can probably tell, he was way more horrific than any vampire Dracula. I mean, you know, the vampire Dracula, as in movies and books and that, uh, you know, he's kind of cool, you know. He, like, looks good, well-dressed, a gentleman, you know, he sucks a bit of blood, usually some beautiful woman that eventually falls in love with him. The way to kill Dracula is to impale him. So you you might figure out where that comes from. There's nothing more to say about it. So I think we'll wrap it up. Um, now let's play a track from Nameless Archives album Maya Tasty called Buluk Shabtan. Go to namelessarchive.com to hear more. Freedom is in the mind. 